Are you waiting for Jesus to come? Are you looking for him? Are you anticipating his work in your life? Are you excited about this season? Because it's a reminder. This is Advent that we're in. And Advent is about waiting and anticipating the Savior. And it's during this time that Christians for centuries have decided that they want to take these four weeks of, of uh, right before Christmas and begin talking about this anticipation of Jesus. Not just of Christmas coming, but of what it tells us about the future. What it tells us about the future is that God has come once through Jesus, and he is coming again. He's fulfilled his promise before, and he will fulfill it again. But many of us don't know this. We don't see it. We don't understand it. We think that Jesus has saved you so that you can be a moral person. Now, morality comes as a result of knowing what we've been saved from. Morality comes as a result of seeing the Savior crucified for you. Morality comes as a result of understanding this God that you serve, that you claim to serve. And so we as Christians want to come around uh, together and to really understand uh, the scriptures in order for us to be able to live fervently and passionately for Jesus Christ. That this fervency, this, this passion has to flow out of the anticipation that God has for us. The faith that we have that he will return again. And that faith is built by seeing God's story. God's story of redemption that plays out through all of the scriptures. The scriptures are one story. It's not a series of disconnected stories. The scriptures are one whole story. And so we've been in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis is communicating to us the beginning of that story. As I've said in weeks past, this story was written for Israel and also for us. But first, it's for Israel. Israel is a group of people. They're wandering in the desert or whatever they're doing. Moses is the one who's, who's writing by the will of God and by the power of God. He's writing these stories down that are true stories. The New Testament scriptures attest to them as true. And so we believe them to be true as well. But these stories are here for the encouragement of Israel. And the encouragement uh, to, uh, to Israel is that God will fulfill his promises. God will fulfill his promise that he states in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is a promise. We talked about it uh, last week, if I remember correctly. And it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking a promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The first time that God gives the promise of his gospel, of what he's going to do to redeem the human race and, uh, and do that through Israel. This is his promise. And so while he is cursing the snake, the serpent, who is Satan in the form of a, a serpent, he talks about this promise. And the promise is, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Enmity is fighting, strife, a battle, if you will, and between, uh, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you weren't here last week, very briefly, let me explain that. It's saying this, there's going to be a battle between you and the woman. Ultimately, between you and, uh, and, and, and my people. And, and this is the battle that's going to be going on. It's going to be between your offspring, Satan, and between her offspring. And what it says there at the end <coughs> is, he shall bruise your head, which is a mortal wound. He's going to crush the head of the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And so what was said here in the hearing of Adam and Eve and the serpent was this. I have a plan. I have a promise. And the promise is this. There is going to be a battle. That battle is going to be between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And so what takes place next is really important. It goes through a couple of other things. 
uh, basically talking about the curse, tells a little story about how um, God puts them out of the garden. He makes clothes for them. He clothes them. If you want to know more about that, you should really go back and listen to last week's sermon. Um, And then he begins in Genesis chapter 4, which says this. Now, Adam knew his wife. And it's not that he just knew her. He uh, knew her really, really well. This is talking about in a sexual way. So this is, a, this is talking about they had intercourse. He knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. We'll stop right there for a second. So it begins a story. Now, if you're not careful, you will think to yourself, oh, this story is a disconnected story. But it's not a disconnected story. It is immediately rushing us into... With the thought of chapter 3, verse 15, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. (coughs) Or, (coughs) excuse me. (coughs) Ah, I'm getting over a cough here. The offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent are going to have a battle. Chapter 4 begins talking about how the woman is having offspring. So it says, she says, I have gotten the help. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She's saying, I've gotten myself another Adam. I've gotten this guy, and here we go. God is going to solve everything from everything that I and my husband, Eve uh, and Adam, together screwed up. I have gotten a new Adam. So here's my offspring. And so what is she thinking? She's thinking about chapter 3, verse 15, which is talking about this great battle and how her offspring is going to solve all things, is going to solve all things. And so she says she got this, got this man, and his name is, uh, is Cain. And it, let me read verse 2 again. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, a couple of things that you should see about this is, first of all, names in the Bible mean something. Names in the Bible mean something. Today, we name our kids things like apple or uh, uh, other silliness uh, and things like that. Forgive me if you have a silly name for a child, but we, do, we, <laughs> we do, orange or whatever. Uh, uh, it, but we, we don't put as much thought into this. And in biblical times, the, a biblical character often, if not always, aligns with what their name is. If you, if you get what I mean there. So their name means this. This is what their life looks like. They, they replicate what their name is. So Cain's name means I have produced. It means to create. This is a guy who is thought to be somebody who's going to get things done. He's going to make things happen. He is he's the firstborn. And in that day, the firstborn is an important child. They're, they're going to get all of dad's stuff. They're going to be the leader of the home in many ways. But here's Cain. He's the firstborn. Everything that he touches turns to gold. He, he is producing. He's a farmer. He's producing a lot. But then you've got Abel. And Abel's name is not as generous. I hope your name isn't Abel today. But if it is, uh, I don't think it means this now. So I'll just say that real quick. But in their day, in the Hebrew, the word for Abel is hevel. Now, hevel, the word hevel, is used in the beginning of Ecclesiastes. If you've ever read the beginning of Ecclesiastes, which is a book in the Bible of the Old Testament, it says meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Hevel, hevel. Everything is hevel. It means uh, futility. It means worthlessness. It means breath. It means vanity. In Eve's mind, here is Cain. He's going to be the producer, and he really models this because he is a producer. But then Abel, not much is expected from him. Not much is expected from Abel because 
He doesn't really get things done. He's not the class president. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's just a guy. He's just a guy. And his name doesn't mean much. And so what takes place here is that somehow they come to the idea, probably through Adam and Eve, it doesn't tell us, but through Adam and Eve, God has instructed them on how to bring offerings, how to bring a sacrifice. Now, the people in Israel at that time who are reading the story, it's an ancient story to them, but they're reading this and they're saying offerings to God uh, happen in this way. Or, or they happen in, in that way. But they, they have a specific outline of how offerings are supposed to look. And typically, those offerings include an animal, and they include some, some type of blood of some sort. And so, read the story again here. It says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. What's happening there? Well, God has respect for, he looks at Abel's offering and he says, now that's an offering. That's, that's what that is. That's, he, he is really bringing this. But it's more than it's just like, oh, I liked Abel's stuff better than Cain's stuff. It's more than that. Because it says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him uh, by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What's it saying there? It's saying this, that Abel brings his offering in faith. It's not just that Abel had better stuff. It's that Abel's life really was all about bringing to God what he is owed, what he deserves, the praise, the glory, the honor, whatever you want to call it. But he brought it by faith, and he makes it into the Hebrews Hall of Fame as a guy who has faith. Abel brings a better offering by faith. So what does that mean about Cain? That means Cain, perhaps through his name, through what he's done in his life, the fact that he's the firstborn, the fact that he has it all together, even though... He's a worshiper of God. He knows to be doing the sacrifices. He knows to be in conversation with God. He is going to be in conversation with God in a second. This is a guy who's been around God for a while. This is a guy who's been around the church, if you will. This is a guy who has done this before, and perhaps it has become rote to him. It's become just religion to him. It's become something that he just is kind of doing and doing and doing, and it doesn't really have the meaning that Abel's offering or Abel's sacrifice has. And so what takes place? Cain is immediately angry. Cain was very angry, and his face fell. He's angry. His face falls. He is depressed. It's written all over his face that he's ticked off. He's ticked off because little brother showed him up. Little brother did better. Little brother's going further. Little brother is the, the one who's supposed to be worthless. The one who's supposed to be meaningless in this family. The one who's not really going to matter when it comes to the great battle. And the one who was supposed to be the offspring that was going to battle with Satan and crush the head of the serpent. That one, his offering is not respected by God. It's not respected by God. So what's happening here? There's an application point here. And that is, Cain brings... Some of his stuff. It's, it doesn't even say that he brings the first fruits. He kind of gives a, a pittance to God. Just not much. It's, it's, it's his stuff. It's, it's good stuff. But it's not his first fruits. And he's basically saying, God, here you go. There's, there's a self-assuredness about him. And what's he, what's he self-assured through? It's through his own abilities. It's through his own, it's his own way, his own ability to produce 
that is saving him. And ultimately, what he's not dependent on is the blood of a sacrifice. In Scripture, blood is very important. People say, why is God such a bloodthirsty God? Well, you can ask God at some point, but God has determined that blood must be spilt in order for there to be remission of sins or forgiveness of sins. What he does, what Cain does, is Cain doesn't spill blood. Cain just brings some fairly good stuff. Cain brings what he can produce. Cain brings his works and says, God, I hope you like my works. But Abel, through his faith, does not have faith just in what he can do. Abel has faith in the fact that he is offering a sacrifice and spilled blood. And that spilled blood, it's by faith in that, it's by faith in the fact that God will forgive me in and through this spilled blood that I can have right relationship with God. So Cain is the one who's self-assured. He is the one who says, you know what, it's my work that, that makes it happen. And you know what, there's plenty of us in this room that you've been going on and on in your Christian faith or some type of Christian faith or some type of belief in God. And you have believed this for a long time, that you have tried to do more good than bad. You have tried to be a moral person. And, and you have brought, you know, some, it's something you've produced. Or you give God something such as just attending church occasionally. Or you give God something such as, you know, I think about God, I pray in the car sometimes, or something along those lines. And God says, stop, I don't want what you think that you can produce. I don't want a bloodless sacrifice. A bloodless sacrifice is a false sacrifice. A bloodless Christ is a false Christ. So often in our culture, there, is, there are people who believe that they, they say, what is it with this bloodthirsty God that he would want the blood of his own son. This looks like divine child abuse. And on and on they go. But what they don't see, what they don't understand, is that Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I give it of my own accord. Jesus isn't abused into giving his life. Jesus is glad to give his life. He's glad, glad to pour out his blood. And the scriptures are replete with this. They show it over and over again that Jesus had to die. He had to go to the cross. The blood had to be spilled. But so many people say, you know what? I don't want to talk about that blood. I want to talk to a woman who said, you know, I would go to those Good Friday services, but they get into all that stuff about, you know, Jesus dying on the cross. And it just, you know, I just don't like to think about all that icky stuff. Let me tell you something. Good Friday is good because of the blood. And that's what Cain is missing. Cain is missing something. See, last week or last two weeks, we were talking about this idea of how we isolate ourselves from God and community. We question whether God is good, and we define for ourselves what is good and right and true. And that's what Cain has done. That's what Cain has done here. So what does God do? Well, last week, we, we showed how God is this God who pursues us. He pursues us. He calls us. He confronts us. He invites us into confession. What's God do here? Look at the next verse. The Lord said to Cain, God is having conversation with a sinner. And he's saying, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God comes to Cain and has a conversation with him and says, hey Cain, do you see what's happening in your life? Do you see how angry you are? Do you see how depressed you are right now? And God is knocking on the door of his heart and he's saying, you've got to see where that sin is coming from, where that depre depression is not sin. His depression is a result of his sin. I want to be really careful and very clear on this. Some of us suffer from depression through biology or what have you. Depression itself is not sin. Why is Cain depressed in his situation? It's because of this. 
is because God isn't respecting my sacrifice. God isn't respecting what I have. God isn't respecting what I gave to him. He should like what I want or what I have. He should want what I have. God, why don't you like what I have? He's angry with God. He's not just angry with Abel. He's angry with God. How dare you disrespect me? How dare you tell me that you don't like my stuff? Who's God in that situation? Isolate yourself from God in community. Question God. Define for yourself. Become your own God. Become your own Lord and Savior. That's the lie that happened from the beginning, from Satan. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You're not going to die. You're now going to be like God. You're going to be a God unto yourself. That's the promise of our culture. That's the promise that our minds tell us. Be your own God. Make excuses for your sin. Just make an excuse. God will forgive you. It'll be fine. It's, it's, it's no big deal. Make excuses for your sin. But what God is saying is this, and perhaps you've had a Christian friend who's come to you and said something similar. God's speaking through them, saying, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? And it may not be anger. Maybe it's essentially this. Why are you not a part of the local church? Why do you just attend occasionally, but you never serve, you never, you're never a part of these, these things, you don't enter in community, you don't have any friends. Guys, we suffer from this big time. Many of us in this room, no close friends. There's nobody who's asked us a hard question. There's nobody who would call us on our stuff. And if somebody did call us on our stuff, we'd say, forget you, I'm out, including if our wife were to ask us this. As we're, doing, we're committing the same thing that, that Cain is, is committing here. Which is, he's just angry with God. God, you should accept me. You should take me as I am. And then we begin to enter into this kind of grumbling phase where we begin to perhaps become depressed, perhaps become more angry with the church, perhaps whatever it is. And it's not just about attending church. It may be about your physical relationship with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend. You know what? I, I don't need to listen to that. I don't need to listen to this stuff. I'm going to become my own God. I'm going to define for me what is right and good and true. It may be about your sexual preference, where God has brought truth into your life, and yet you're not receiving it. God has communicated to you what should be happening, and yet you don't receive it. And your face is falling. You get angry with God. You get angry with others that tell you the truth. And he encourages him. And he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, if you do what's right, if you could do what's right, Cain, if you could do what's right, you, will you not be accepted? I'm asking you to obey who I am. See, our obedience shows the fact that we are following God, that we have faith in him through Jesus Christ. Our obedience shows this, and God is encouraging him. He's speaking to him, and he's saying to him, come on, come back. Won't you come back? And you, if you're sitting here and you're steeped in sin and you know this, there's no one in here who is without sin, by the way, including myself. And so what we can know is this. We can know that many of us may have something that's just, it's eaten away at us. It's eaten away at us. It's eaten away at us. And you may not take the final leap right this second. But God is coming to you as a gracious Savior, and he's saying this. Man, I want you to turn from that. And he says, look at what he says. Sin is crouching at the door. He uses a term that it's, it's, sin is like an animal. It's waiting for you at the door. It's waiting to come after you. It's waiting to get you. What are you doing? It's, it's waiting for you. It's going to get you. Look out. Its desire uh, is contrary to you. It's, sin changes you. I think it's Tim Keller that said that sin is not just something that we do. It's a force. It's a power. And when you enter into sin, when you give yourself over to sin, it is a power. It is a force. And it is contrary to you. Sin brings death. Sin brings separation. Sin brings these things. It is a force that is coming after you. And he's saying, but you must rule over it. You've got to dominate sin. Now, let me just say this. We've got a lot of weak sauce 
people these days that say, I can't. I can't overcome it. I can't let it go. I can't, I can't whatever. But it says clearly here, you must rule over it. How do we know that we can rule over it? In Romans, it talks about how we're slaves to sin. It's a slavery that we're entered into. But when Jesus comes, and when we have faith in Jesus Christ, what takes place is that we get the power of the Holy Spirit inserted into our life, and he enables us to be able to say yes to Jesus and no to sin. To be able to say yes to Jesus and no to sin. And it may take time. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect right now. No, it means this. It means what is the progression of your sanctification? Little by little, God gets pickier and pickier with our sin. As we get closer to him, he starts pointing out different areas of our life. And he says, I need you to take care of this. I already did on the cross. I gave you the spirit. And by his power, you can. You must rule over it. So what happens? Verse 8. So Cain spoke to, his, uh, to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, uh, his brother Abel, and killed him. Now there are other tr- translations, like the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew text which essentially says this. Cain spoke to, his, to Abel, his brother, and said, let's go into the field. Hey, bro, let's go hang out for a little bit. And what that says is this. It says, if that's in fact the true translation of that, Abel goes to his brother and says, hey, let's go into the field. He takes him into the field. He takes him away from people. He takes him into a place where he doesn't think he can be seen, and he kills him. He kills his brother. He goes after him. He takes him out. And why is this? It's because he did not let go of that sin. Sin was crouching at the door. He gave himself to it, and now he's in it. And there was no other way to get by it. The brutality of sin is shown for the first time. This is the first time that it talks about sin in the scriptures. He kills his brother 1 John 3.12 says, why? Why Cain killed his brother? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He just flat out hated his brother because he did what was right and he was doing what was wrong. That's what was going on. So what happens? The Lord comes to Cain. We talked last week about how how does God respond to our sin? What does he do? Well, he pursues us, he calls us, and he confronts us. He says, the Lord said to Cain in verse 9, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? Now think about the response that Adam had. Adam, where are you? And Adam has this kind of rambling response when, when he says, uh, I heard you, heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself, and, and, and whatever. No, that's not Cain's response. Adam's response is like, oh, man. Uh, no, Cain's response is, I don't know. Where'd you go look for him? It's a hardened heart. It's a hardened heart. When you walk away from God, and you really choose to walk away from God. It's very easy to end up in this place. And you may prove that you were never a believer to begin with. As your heart hardens towards God and you say, I don't know. You go find him. Am I his keeper? Now Cain responds angrily. And God is coming to him and he's inviting confession. He's inviting confession. What, where is Abel your brother? Cain, I'm coming to you right now, and I I just want to lay the groundwork here for you to be able to speak the truth to me, and I I just want you to tell me the truth, where is Abel? And instead of Abel coming with, with sacrifice, true sacrifice, God, you're right. I did what was wrong. I've done what was evil in your sight and fulfilling what God has. Instead of this, Cain responds with a hardened heart. 
And it says in verse 10, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. He gives him another opportunity, and he says, Listen, I know what has taken place. But he's inviting confession. See, God did not come in and smite Cain. God did not come in and just go, bam, that's it. Do you know how many of us feel that way about God? You, you did that again? God did not knock him down. God did not take him out. God comes to him and says, what have you done? Your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Your brother's blood is, is coming to me. And, it, and, it's, and it's screaming out for justice. Your brother's blood is screaming out for justice. What have you done? What have you done? Now, what's your response in this? See, we don't all have to be Cain and having murdered someone. But we can live the life of Cain and live independent as though we are our own God. How have you lived as though you are your own God? As though you are the arbiter of what is good and right and true. How have you done so? And God is pursuing you. He's not condemning you. He's pursuing you. And he's saying, won't you confess? Won't you confess? So his response is basically nothing. We don't see Cain's response. But God's response is, I must have justice. There must be justice for Abel's blood. He says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and away from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain responds to the curse that he personally is enduring now. And this is, this is, this is what happens. This is what takes place. You are only cursed. You are only cursed to the degree that you continually say no to God. To your rejection of God over and over and over again leads you into this place. And this is where Cain is at. And he immediately realizes, he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear in verse 13. And so he's very worried, and he's worried about being killed. He says, people are going to kill me. But the Lord comes back to him. And look at this. It says in verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Ken, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now what happens? God, in his graciousness, to a sinner, to somebody who said, forget you, God. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. Why don't you go find him? God doesn't smite him. God is gracious even to the sinner. God is gracious even to the sinner who stiff-armed him for his whole life, who said, you know what, I don't believe in God. I don't care about this God figure. God is gracious to the sinner who's been sleeping around or is involved sexually in ways that they should not be. God is gracious to the sinner who's a gossip. God is gracious to the sinner who's a glutton. God is gracious to the sinner who overworks. God is gracious to the sinner, and he's gracious to Cain. Who is this God? Who is this God? It's the God who's even gracious to his enemies. How much more gracious is he to the ones who love him? Not that we have loved him, 
but that he loved us and gave himself for us. God's graciousness is extended to you and to me, even as sinners. God's graciousness to Cain was to put a mark on Cain and say, no, Cain, I'm putting a mark on you and nobody better touch you. That's how good this God is. That's how amazing he is. Now, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after uh, the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mehujael. And Mehujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of all those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naaman. So what's happening right there? It's telling us another story. Now, if you, if you get this wrong, you'll think, oh, it's just telling us all kinds of random facts about all these things. No, these are connected. Remember what I said. The Bible is one story connected by one theme. The Bible is one story. This is connected to the last story and the story before that. So he says uh, in verse 20, well, I should say, let me say this real quick. This is a very interesting fact, and that is that uh, Lamech, who is not necessarily a good guy, as we'll find out in just a second, he has these kids, and, and these kids grow up in his family, and then he, they have other kids and all of this other stuff, but they are, let me see here, they dwell in tents and they have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. And then there was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. God uses even the sinner to bring about culture. God uses even bad people to do great things in our city. These are God's good gifts, even happening through the evil of this family. God is using this family to do amazing things. What do we see from that? We can see in culture as we look around, and we can recognize the goodness of the things that our culture does. Artists, people who build things, people who make things happen, the kindness of people, whatever it is. We can look at those things and we can say, these are the good gifts from God, even being used by evil people, just like me who need Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives... Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. This is like a poem. It's an interesting poem. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. What is going on here? What's happening? Why, why all, of this, all of this history? Well, this is seven generations after Cain. So seven generations after Cain, we have Lamech. Cain is a murderer. He goes on. His family flourishes. Seven generations later, here we have Lamech. And Lamech seems like he's a poet, but it's a very interesting poet because it's about murdering somebody. And look at what it says here. I have killed a man for wounding me. So instead of it being an eye for an eye, as the Israelites would have understood what justice is, this guy gets punched in the face and comes back with a spear and kills the guy or something like that. There's brutality. There's brutality in the life of Lamech. There's brutality in the line of Cain. What's it showing us? It's showing us the line of Cain is messed up. The family of Cain is messed up. Is Cain the offspring, as Eve was hoping? Is, he, is Cain the one that we were hoping for, that was going to defeat the snake, that was going to crush the head of the snake? What is it saying? It's saying, no. Lamech is seven generations away. Lamech is, is not any better. In fact, he's worse, and, and he even knows this. He says, do you see what Cain did? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Cain got revenge on his brother. Cain got revenge on Abel. Abel, you made me look bad. 
Abel, you de destroyed my identity as the chosen one, as the child that was the most successful. Abel, and that was his revenge. He killed him. If Abel's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech says, you know what? You've seen my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather? You saw how brutal he was? Guess what? I am 77 times more brutal than Cain. What do we see? Righteousness is not abounding in the family of Cain. It's going from bad to worse. And not only that, he is celebrating violence. He is celebrating violence. Israelites are reading this story and they're saying, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to the people of God? Like, is God, can God preserve his people? Can God preserve the offspring, the seed of righteousness? Can God preserve this people? What's going to take place? Look at the next verse. Think about this. We go from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to Lamech and his wives, and then all of a sudden we flash back to Adam and Eve. Why are we going back to Adam and Eve? See, we went ahead seven generations, and what it showed us is this. That came to a dead end. What's God going to do? What's God going to do? How is God going to fix this situation? Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again. Adam has relations with his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Same word used in Genesis chapter 3, 15, which says there will be enmity between your offspring and between her offspring. She says, okay, now there's another one. Cain came to a dead end. We see how that happened all the way through Lamech. It's destroyed. God has started over with Adam and Eve. God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, which means weakness, by the way. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that, that even that last sentence seems completely out of place, but it's telling us a story. And the people of Israel are on pins and needles saying, what's going to happen? Well, Adam and Eve have another child. His name is Seth. He's replacing what should have been. He's replacing Abel. She thought Cain was the right one, but it was actually Abel. But Abel was killed. And God starts it all over, which is all within God's plan and knowledge. And God restarts this whole thing. And Seth has a son named Enosh, which means weakness. And God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. Here's the question that we come to. Do we look at Christmas? Do, do we think about that manger scene? Whatever it was, Joseph and Mary sitting there around this cradled baby as the savior of the world. Perhaps there were wise men there, but, you know, scholars say that they couldn't have gotten there for a, a couple of years, perhaps. So they're there later. But let's just say that they're all there for our purposes. And they're sitting there and they're saying, oh my gosh, he's here. He's arrived. Oh my goodness, what are they thinking right there? They're thinking like an Israelite. They're thinking like the Hebrews, and they're saying, God is faithful, and he has been faithful from generation to generation to generation to generation. And he's been faithful, and I'm looking at this baby right here who is 
the offspring who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so they can look back through all of time up until that point, and they can say, God's been faithful up until here. And I see the story play out, and I see the story play out, and I see people try to thwart God's plan. I've seen Egypt try to kill all the baby boys. I've seen all of these prophets killed one after another. What's going on? It's a cosmic battle. It's a cosmic battle between good and evil, between the seed of, of Satan and the seed of the woman, who is ultimately the son of God. This cosmic battle has been playing out, and Satan has been working throughout the ages, through Egypt, and through all those who would try to kill the prophets and the people, and all of these things, until they get to Jesus. And then what do they do? What does Satan do? Satan thinks to himself, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill the offspring. I'm going to kill the one that God said was going to crush my head. I'm going to kill that one, and I'm going to put him on a cross, and he's, he's going down. Well, what happens? He doesn't go down. He does for three days, but he's resurrected from the dead. He's resurrected from the dead, and what takes place is this, is that he has conquered Satan, sin, and death. He has not just conquered Satan, but he has also conquered this crouching lion, whatever it is, that's by the door, that's knocking on our door, and that's sitting there waiting for us, waiting to attack us. He has conquered Satan, he has conquered sin, and he has ultimately conquered death, which was the judgment against Adam and Eve that all men would die and how has he conquered it? Through the gift of eternal life. So where are we right now? When we sit in Advent and we think about hope, this week is about hope. Are we hoping in the Savior? Are we looking at the first coming of Christ and saying, I see everything that God has done up until that point. And then I see what God has done by preserving his seed, his church. Since the birth of Christ, through the death and resurrection of Christ, and I see how he has preserved us. And do I see that he is coming again and I'm looking with anticipation to the fact that he's coming again. Men and women, you cannot live fervently for God in your relationship with Jesus Christ if you do not have the end in mind. We look forward by looking back. We look forward and we, and we say, I have faith that Jesus will return, that I have received eternal life and I will live with him for eternity in his kingdom, under his rule and his reign, as I live right now, because I look back and I see all that God has done from the very beginning. Is that where you're at? Or are you doing a little bit of Christianity right now? Are you, are you, you living just this weak sauce Christian life? Are you living like, like nothing matters? Because I got to tell you, it's, it's not that you're just kind of doing this thing. You're basically doing the same thing that Cain did. You and I, when we decide to isolate ourselves and we question God, and we define for ourselves what is good and right and true. Adam and Eve did it. Cain did it. When, when we decide that we're going to be God, while we put on this show that we're making, yeah, here's an offering, here's an offering, here's, a, you know, here's my, my stuff, here's my, here's my little bit of my time, here's a little bit of my effort. But we're not doing that by faith. We don't offer God our lives by faith. Listen, the blood of Abel fell on the ground and it cries out for justice. But the blood of Jesus falls on the ground and it cries out for justice as well. And, and what is that justice? The justice is this. Jesus says, I went to the cross for you 
I bled out for you, and it is just that you do not receive the penalty that you deserve for your sin. So all of your half-hearted Christianity, all of your sin, the, the stuff that you're thinking about right now, whatever it is, the thing that you know that you've done wrong is covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood is crying out from the ground and is saying this, you are forgiven. Won't you do what's right? Won't you walk with me? Won't you see that I did so much for you and now I just want you to walk in relationship with who I am. Won't you please look at this? This Christmas, can we remember and hope not just that Jesus went to the cross, but that God has had a plan since the beginning of time and it goes throughout eternity and we get to be a part of it. Let's walk in faith. Let's pray. Well, God, there's all of us in this room to one degree or another, Lord, are, have not been anticipating you. Well, Christmas becomes just something that we do every year. It's a great season. We have new drinks at Starbucks. It's fun. The weather changes. But Lord Jesus, we forget that this is about hoping in you. We're not just optimistic, but we're, we're hopeful. We have a hope that's based on truth, that's based on faith. And so, Lord, may we walk in faith. Lord, may we look to you as the one who who can save us, Lord, that we can't save ourselves. Lord, may we look to you and obey you. Lord, may we see where our sin is at today. Lord, would we take note of what's happening? And Lord, you are warning us. You're cautioning us. It's crouching at the door. Lord, may we confess it to you and to others. Lord, may we see that, that our sin is taking us down a path we don't want to go. It's contrary to us. Lord, may we look to your blood spilled on the cross, crying out for justice for us, forgiving us. Lord, would you allow us to see this and know this and understand it this Christmas season? It's in your name we pray, amen.